his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went in on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophet, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and maintaining with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during this day in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he had gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David in the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What are you supposed that I am? What do you do that I suppose that I am? I am not he, but no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of who, whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, understand and unturnances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers that this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corporation, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy 
and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he said, says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corporation. For David, after he said, sir, the proposal of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corporation. But he whom God raised up did not see corporation. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should become a look, you scoffers, be unstounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city had gathered to hear the the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and leading men out of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went up, and, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the, whole, the Holy Spirit, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Carrie. Great job. Kids, you can follow Miss Ashley. Congregation, if you would, please open up to Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our series, What is the Mission of the Church? If you're new, you're visiting, um, haven't been here in a while, that is what we've been talking about. What are we doing as a church? What's the purpose of the church universal, the church historical, and Flat Rock Community Church even today? Um, and we believe it's to be and make disciples for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. That is primary to us. There are many other important things that the church can be about and do. But we really want to create a culture where people are being trained and equipped, not only to learn how to follow Jesus, but to teach other people how to follow Jesus, to exemplify what it is to follow Jesus. And so far, we've seen the growth and the expansion of this New Testament church. Now, the church has always been around. 
The church is God's people, and God had a people in the Old Testament. But now that, that church is expanding its borders, um, if you will. It reminds me of the, the, I believe it was the lawyer that came up to Jesus and asked, you know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus expands his boundaries to basically say, everyone's your neighbor. And God is expanding the boundaries of the church to include all different kinds of neighbors here. And we're seeing Jews and Greeks and slaves and free and people who are poor and rich and um, all different kinds of phases of life being brought into the church in a really profound way that it never has before. Um, they're being brought in by the hundreds and, and the thousands even. But as the church expands, um, people are, you know, they're hearing about it for the first time. They're hearing about the gospel for the first time. It's changing all of their allegiances, it's reorienting them to um, what, they, what they do with their time and their money and their, their resources, how they um, think about life and their worldview. And these people are turning from their pagan religions to uh, faith in Jesus in an instant, and it's turning the world upside down. And these people who, these Jews who thought they had it right and they figured God out and they figured out the secret sauce of how to please God and, and earn salvation their world's being turned upside down by this free gospel. And so the church is going forth. It's experiencing persecution, um, but it's still growing. It's still expanding despite that. And then this week we get to this wonderful encounter where these missionaries are pushing forward out into the world as far as they can go. And they come to this specific city um, and are, receive an incredible opportunity for Paul to preach his first sermon and to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. So there's really a lot for us to unpack here about the true nature of the gospel and then how we go about sharing it ourselves and then what kind of response we should expect and what kind of response we should pray for. So let me pray and we'll unpack all this. Lord, I do thank you for the message that is so clear here. The God, this is just chock full of the good news of the gospel that um, Jesus Christ has... Um, live the life we couldn't and die the death we deserved and be raised to life for eternal hope for all of us. I pray that we have a greater understanding of that. And for anyone in this room who doesn't see Jesus as their Savior and their hope in this life, I pray that um, through your word this morning that their eyes might be open, their ears might be open to hear the truth and their eyes to see the truth and to embrace it and to cast their faith upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, if you have a bulletin, if you want to open that up, there's a little title in there. I think it's the Word of Life, the Words of Life. Um, that title is actually a little bit of a placeholder. That's called Jay not getting his sermon in on time. Um, and so Thursday at noon is when Hannah prints the bulletins, and sometimes I'm not ready at Thursday at noon, so I just throw something out. Um, but the more I really looked at this, I don't want to rush it, you know. I want to make sure I'm, I'm letting it stew and cook a little bit, marinate. And on Friday, it really started to come to me um, a title for this sermon. I like to tell people that writing a sermon for me is really like putting a puzzle together, and it took me longer than usual to recognize the pieces and where they fit. Um, but on Friday, I realized the theme for this message and the title I'd like for you to write, you may want to just even cross out that and write, if you take notes, write, write this title. But the placeholder is kind of just a fun little play on, on the uh, NBC sitcom, This Is Us. That's the title that kept coming to me for some reason, This Is Us. And as many of you know, I don't know, does anybody watch This Is Us? Am I the only one who's stirred by this wonderful show? Um, Frankie's gauging with me. Um, this Is Us tells the story of siblings Kevin, Kate, and Randall. They're called the Big Three. And their parents, Jack and Rebecca Pearson, from the birth of these, these kind of unique triplets in the 70s up until present day. Well, I was born in 1979. I was raised as an 80s and 90s kid. So I really resonate with like the story they're trying to show of how these kids uh, grew up and what their parents are going through. 
And what I love about the show, it's one of the few shows on television that's actually hopeful. So it deals with some really heavy stuff, but it usually has a, almost always has a hopeful outcome. And just so many shows that I even like are just dark and kind of depressing, and that's kind of like the new thing. Um, to make it like as dark and gritty as you possibly can and just real. Uh, but this show, is, it, it brings a lot of life. And the writing on the show is really compelling. There's times when I see Kevin playing high school football or going to a party, or I see um, Kate, she's, she experiences a miscarriage in the show, spoiler alert, um, and she, uh, she deals with, with body image, and then Randall trying to do life with his wife, and them fighting and, and figuring out how to raise their kids and uh, dealing with the culture, and then the parents um, doing marriage themselves and all the different ups and downs that they have. I feel like as I watch that show, I relate to it because I feel like it's kind of my story. I feel like I can relate to a lot of parts of their story that are parts of my story. And I think that's why it's called This Is Us, because I think it kind of refers to more than just this family watching on TV. You're supposed to think, this is us. This is real life. This is what we, most of us, experience and can relate to. And like I said, no matter the struggles they go through, there seems to be some heavy stuff that they go through. There always seems to be hope for them. And the story we hear from Paul here in Acts chapter 13 um, is the first recorded sermon of Paul. Um, and it's not just the Jewish story. It's the story of all of the people gathered there. It's the story of, it's the Christian story. It's, it's our story. This, this story that he's telling is us. This is us. Um, and that, I think that's one, of the, one really important part of this that I want you to see, and some I think even for the first time, because maybe you haven't read Scripture this way. And I, I think that's really applicable to us because Paul's telling people the same thing. He's saying, I know you may have read it this way, but you misunderstood it. And it's still so easily misunderstood. And the, the, kind of the secret of it all is pretty plain and simple, but it's almost so plain and simple that people just aren't, we in our human condition want to have everything to do with saving ourselves. And we kind of naturally default to kind of keeping a list so that when we stand before God one day and he's like, why should you get in? We just start reeling off all the stuff that we have and the stuff that we've done. And that's not at all Christianity. That's not the gospel. Um, so I don't mean to burst your bubble or like reorient your entire life, you know, goals. But that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's, he's telling them, you just didn't get your history right. And some of us haven't gotten our history right. We don't really know where Jesus comes in, where, what the Bible is trying to tell us about our need for Jesus. And so let's, let's clear that up together. Some of us who understand that, because um, I've sat with quite a few of you and we've, we've hashed this out, and I know you've received this kind of teaching before, just praise God that this is your story, that you get to be a, a part of it. So I want to look at really two um, truths that, that uh, Paul brings up here. One, this is your story or our story, and two, this is your hope or our hope. First, your story. Um, always helpful to set the context a little bit of what's going on in this passage. It's such a long passage to read. I'm, some of you all are hearing it for the first time. You're like, what in the world is taking place here? But we're told that Paul and his companions, they've set sail from this place called Paphos where um, Sergius Paulus, this government official, has been converted to Christianity through this divine disruption of this false prophet. So as people hear about what Jesus did, um, some people are trying to emulate that and, and you know, obviously see the influence and, and power they thought that he had. And they're trying to emulate that. And there are these false prophets. And there was a guy in the previous chapter named Bar-Jesus, of all names, 
um, son of Jesus is the, was the translation of his name, and he was a false prophet. But uh, Paul and his companions, they, they uh, called down a judgment upon him, and he's blinded. And in that blindness and that disruption, that darkness, another man is converted as he sees what God does to this man. And then maybe, potentially, uh, this Bar-Jesus guy is converted as well, but we're not told. So they're experiencing all of that, and they're, they're experiencing, as they're going out into these, these random cities, these unreached people groups, if you will, they're experiencing the power of God at work. And so they want more of it. It's intoxicating. They want to see God change the world. And so they're willing to take great risks to go to these just far-off places. And we, we find out through um, some other sources that this Sergius Paulus guy is like, this really makes sense. He's like, since I'm a believer, I really want you to go tell my family about Jesus and the gospel. I want them to know the truth, too. So go off to um, Antioch, Pisidia, and uh, by way of Persia, or Perga, and um, go tell my family about it. And he even gives them a letter of recommendation to go with him so that they, they have his official backing and recommendation. So they're coming to this place with that. And we're told really quickly, this will become a much bigger deal later in Acts, but we're told that John uh, leaves, leaves the group and he goes his separate way. Well, Luke is kind of downplaying that right now. We'll get more into it. But there's a, a disagreement amongst the disciples about the, where they should go and how they should go about doing this. And John has some ideas about what, what they, where they really need to go, and then Paul has his ideas about where they need to go. And so they decide to separate because they can't come to a conclusion, which I find to be really refreshing because it means that even the apostles in the early church didn't agree on everything. And it's okay for us not to agree on everything. And God can send us in different ways to do different work for his glory. He can even use those disagreements. Now, do, do we want unity? Of course. And this causes some problems with them. But it is refreshing that um, even the apostles, things weren't all roses for them all the time. This is, this is difficult. Human feelings and conditions are a part of what they're doing. So they go to Antioch, Pisidia. And this is, now, this is confusing because you're like, well, weren't they just in Antioch? What is Antioch, Pisidia? Well, there's actually 16 Antiochs because um, this, this guy named Seleucius Nicator, who, he named 16 Antiochs after his father, Antioch, Antiochus. Um, he went around just naming all these places that he had found, Antioch, whatever. And so they end up in this specific Antioch, one of 16 and it was typical for them when they go, and you're going to see in the next chapter they do the same thing, they always go to a synagogue first. And one reason they do that is because Paul's a trained rabbi, and typically whenever visitors would come to the synagogue, it was just kind of custom and hospitality to give the, the visiting rabbi an opportunity to speak. You see this a lot in churches in other countries. I've been to Africa, and when I go there, they know I'm a visitor, and they, they want me to speak, even if I don't have anything prepared. Um, and we don't really do that as much here. Uh, but that's, that was kind of the custom. So they show up, and they have this letter of recommendation. The people recognize um, them from that letter. Paul, I guess they find out he is a trained rabbi himself, and so he accepts this invitation to stand up and share. And that's it. the invitation he's given, you have to understand, is an opportunity uh, Christians who are committed to sharing their faith with other people and telling people about the good news of the gospel, it's an opportunity they would dream of. Because the door is wide open for Paul. It's just teed up for him as this great evangelistic softball is given to him. And he, of course, knocks it out of the park. And you know, speaking of wide open uh, opportunities, wide open doors to share the gospel, last, yesterday I did a wedding in Knoxville. Aaron and Lexi, who go here, some of you all know them, most of you all know them. A uh, bunch of us traveled down to Knoxville in this 
absolutely beautiful uh, estate, if you will. Um, and uh, we were doing the wedding, and Aaron wanted to do something totally different than I've ever seen someone do. So I think I've done like 15 weddings. And I've never been asked for anyone to do this, but the, he's you know, obviously the groom. And he says, I want to take time, just five minutes, to welcome people and then just share the gospel with them. Are you okay with that? I'm like, yes. Um, it depends. Uh, so he wrote it out, and he practiced it, and I'd obviously never seen it done before, so I'm like a little bit nervous about how this is all going to go down, and we're sitting there in the blazing heat. And Aaron stands up, and he welcomes everyone, and then he just starts telling them about the hope that he has in Jesus. As one who is dead in his trespasses and sins, he says, one who is uh, completely undeserving of the grace and mercy of Jesus, he is so thankful that he and Lexi have received it, and that's the kind of the cornerstone of their marriage. And he wants everyone there to know the hope that they have and that this day that they're celebrating, although it's, you know, everyone's getting gussied up and looking pretty um, and there's all the food and everything and champagne and all that, it's really about God and it's really about his faithfulness. And so Aaron just like knocked it out of the park. And I'm really, I was driving back and I told Natalie, I was like, you know what? That was so brilliant. And he's like in tears sharing this. That was so brilliant. I should have just tabled the homily because one, I got totally, totally shown up. Um, and there was, there was really nothing left to say after he said that. But I, of course, went on my spiel for 15 minutes as people are just, you know, I'm sweating through my black robe. Um, but it would have been fine because he took advantage of that opportunity. He was prepared for that opportunity. And Paul, as this trained rabbi, probably anticipated this invitation as a guest. And we'll see that he's certainly prepared to share. And so here's what I would ask you. Do you look for opportunities, Christian? Are you prepared to share? Do you find open doors? Do you pray for open doors? Because I think this is very much part of our calling, but something that our culture is just really uncomfortable. Um, I find the most favor and success when I do this one-on-one with people. And I'm always praying for that opportunity as a pastor. I'm praying for God to allow me to meet continually with people one-on-one in order to talk about the scriptures, whether they're a Christian or not. And I think Paul probably, as these people react very favorably, even though he's telling them something that's actually pretty provocative and scandalous by rewriting their whole history, uh, as he experiences, he's experiencing the confirmation of God as he clears this path for him to do the work that he's called to do. And I feel that same kind of confirmation here at Flat Rock. It seems as though God continues to clear a path for me and for others to do meaningful and impactful and transformational ministry with people, sharing the, the hope of the gospel with them, applying it to their lives, reading the scriptures with them, praying with and for them, serving and encouraging others as we put ourselves in positions of these kinds of opportunities. I think it's why this church is so blessed and fruitful right now. Um, I would really uh, encourage you guys to pray for us for more of these opportunities. And if you're someone who, you're, you're like, I would love to read the scriptures with you, Jay, or with Wim, or with Ryan, or with Mike, or whoever. Um, if you would like to unpack maybe how you've thought about the Bible, and then what maybe we really believe is biblical about how we should view the world, and us, and sin, and Jesus, that we would love that invitation. That would be a wide open door for us. So if you or you know anyone else, like we want to have coffee with you. We want to sit and open up the scriptures together and take your questions and your doubts and your, even your misunderstandings. So Paul is this brilliant evangelist, um, and, and I think one reason he's brilliant here is because he doesn't make presumptions, okay? Paul understands his audience wherever he is. 
And you'll see this. He doesn't preach the same way every time he does through Acts. So this is the first time we see it. But if you look at the future ones, it's always a little bit different. And he, does, he uses what's, what I call presuppositional apologetics. It's just a big, meaty theological term, which means he takes into consideration people's stories. He understands where they're coming from. And for the Jews here, he knows they know the scriptures already. They know the Pentateuch like the back of their hand. They know the prophets. Many of them have it memorized, and it's, uh, it's an oral culture, so they've, they've, a lot of them have memorized this stuff. And he goes straight in to the scriptures, quoting scripture after scripture, pointing them to what the scriptures are really talking about and really leading to. And you notice that Paul doesn't force it. So he doesn't walk in there and like, hey, I've traveled from far and wide. Can somebody give me a mic? Um, he sits there and he listens to the reading of the word. And this is kind of where we get our, our practice and rhythm and ritual of, of preaching is, you know, we read the word and then we, we talk about it. And they would read the word, the prophets and the, and the Pentateuch, and then someone would stand up and comment on it. And Paul's not being presumptuous here. He's not expecting him to be the guy. He understands that he could be invited to speak, and he's certainly prepared to do so. But he waits patiently, and he listens. And then he responds when he's asked. It's one of the most powerful things I've learned in my own pursuits of doing evangelism, is listening is a powerful tool. Everyone here wants their story to be known. Um, some of us don't feel like there's safe places for that. Some of us feel ashamed of our story, but we would love a safe place where we could just have someone hear our story and where we're coming from. And I want to be a church that listens to stories. And as we listen to the stories, so what we find out is, in our nervousness, in my own insecurities about sharing Jesus with people, because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm crazy or it's not going to make sense, I'm just going to totally mess it up, I sit there and I, th- I, I kind of want to jump in and I want to just start talking, just so that I can control the situation and I ask me anything I don't know the answer to. And that doesn't work very well, and people don't want that. So I sit and I listen. And then what I really like to do, if I, at all possible, is let someone ask me to share Because if they don't ask me to share, maybe they're not ready to hear from me. Maybe they just need to share more and more and more. Maybe it's three or four times of just meeting and sharing. And then finally bringing them to a place where maybe I can ask a couple questions or they can begin to ask me. And we can begin to massage the gospel into their lives. Now, not everyone's like that. Some people are in desperate mode and they come to you and I just, I'm struggling. Life isn't working. Tell me what to do. And that's, you have to know when that's appropriate. But Paul here knows when it's appropriate to stand up and say what he's about to say. And you see that he's also a teachable uh, uh, evangelist, if you will, and discipler. He's, his sermons are basically the same as Peter's and um, the same as Stephen's. You know, he witnessed Stephen's, Stephen's execution, and Stephen recounted the whole history of Israel. And Paul does the same thing here. And he quotes the same, some of the same psalms and scriptures that Peter quotes in his sermon. So Paul is listening, and as he's seeing these other people do it, he himself is replicating that, which is really important for us. We need a place and a space as a church where you can learn to replicate what we're doing, where you can be trained in how to share your faith. And I think one of the most powerful qualities of someone who is successful in this is teachability. I think essentially, if you're not teachable, your life in ministry is not going to go very well. Um, You're eventually going to reach the end of yourself, where you realize you don't have it all figured out. And so part of the point is that I think we need to adapt to our audience if we're to effectively minister the gospel to them. I think that's why passing out tracts is, is okay and God uses that. I don't think it's the most effective way to share the love of Jesus with people because it's not relational. 
it's, there's no story involved in it. I think one thing I've discovered um, and I'm really thankful for is I've sat with numerous people now and, and done this kind of biblical framework thing that I do where I take them through these six sessions and then after those six sessions I ask them if they keep wanting to meet. But I, I show them the connective tissue that connects Genesis to Revelation. And it's that covenant promise, that Genesis 3.15 gospel, that God will send a rescuer to crush the serpent's head, that he will rescue his people through a rescuer, through a person. And most people don't read the scriptures as connecting that. They just open their Bible and like, I don't know what this has to do with anything. And if it doesn't really say anything about me or anything I can relate to, I'm not really sure where it's coming from or the story it's trying to tell. Well, I think that people... When they do, because they don't naturally read the scriptures as part of their story, they have trouble following it because they don't see that connective tissue. Um, the connective tissue is vital for a right understanding of the story the scriptures are trying to tell. It's one cohesive, epic adventure and love story compiled by dozens of authors over centuries. That's what's so remarkable about it. They're all telling the same story, but some of them didn't even live in the same time, and they're all confirming the same thing, that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is that rescuer. And all of the Old Testament anticipates that rescuer coming. And the law is given to the people of God to show them their need, that they can't keep the law perfectly, that they need a rescuer, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute. So they slaughter animal after animal after animal. It's a bloody mess. It's a huge fiasco to do it. There's all this setup, all this travel, all this work, all these volunteers. And it's not enough because they need something more. They need something better. And we read the Old Testament and we think, well, God, why did you make them do this? This seems like such a waste of time. But God sees things outside of time, <laughs> we believe. So he is patient. He is long-suffering. He does things. Listen, God is God because we can't fully understand him. We can't grasp his ways. So for you to come to the conclusion of, well, I just can't understand why God would do that. So it can't be true. That's a really ignorant way to live life because there's a lot of things that you don't understand that you just accept there's a lot of things you you know are way beyond my comprehension that i trust is true and we're talking about if there is a god who created the entire universe and he spoke it into being just because he's doing things that you can't quite wrap your minds around with and we're going to get to one of those things here at the end which is pretty powerful it doesn't mean it's not true it doesn't mean God's not doing something. I would let that challenge you in your own finiteness, your own humanity. Um, I believe the story that he tells is the real history. But like the Jewish people listening to Paul here, we just don't see how it all adds up and what exactly it means. I love getting people to the point where they see how their story intersects the story of redemption, that God has created you to play a part in the story that's being told in the Bible. And if you don't understand that, it can be life-changing. God has uniquely created you, Brandon or Rob or Ryan, or Libby, to play your unique part in that grand story, a part that only you can play. What is your part? What is your purpose? I asked people, I asked, I sat with a guy this week, I said, tell, just, we always start off with the simplest of questions. I guess this is really not that simple, but it sounds simple. What is your purpose? Why do you exist? He had never considered that question. And, he, and he, he said, you know, to have friends and to 
help my family. And I'm like, those are wonderful things. That is not your purpose. Your purpose is to know and be known by God. And then we get to unpack the scriptures in that story of how God is creating us to play our part in the story, to know and be known, just as Adam and Eve were created to do. And things have not changed. So we see that this story of the Israelites is our story. You also see that their hope is our hope. Because Paul's central message is this. Your God is our God. He raised up Israel and sent John as the final prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. All the other prophets and kings from Abraham to David were types of Jesus. Showing the people no matter how good of a king they had, there was one coming who would be perfect. If only they would trust God to provide in his timing. He tells them Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He meets all the criteria of the Messiah that the scriptures talk about. That's why he quotes Messianic Psalms and prophecy from Isaiah. And he's just doing that from memory. In this really, what I would believe is a very sweat-inducing situation, uh, at least for me. It was all about Jesus. He's the son God would forsake. The perfect sacrifice that would not see corruption. A work they wouldn't believe, as he quotes. A work meant to be light for the whole world and not just for this ethnic group of people. They wanted to hold it possessively. And Paul is chock full of good news here. I mean, he says, by faith in the son of Abraham, Abraham can become the father of all who believe. Jew and Greek and Gentile and slave and free and whoever has faith. Remember, no one's asking for this. No one's asking for this type of religion that is multi-tribal, that is international. Everyone's good in their tribes. And Paul's coming along and he's just bursting those, those barriers wide open. He's destroying them. And he's saying, it's for the whole world. It's for everybody. Every person and nation, tongue and tribe. I mean, what an important message for our culture. It's experiencing so much strife and division and disunity. To say it's for all of us, that we can look at each other as people with dignity and value and inherent worth because they're created in the image of God. That's how the church is going to make disciples. We have to view our neighbors this way. No matter where they come from, no matter what they look like. I think we're beginning to reflect some of that here at Flat Rock. You know, look at verse 32. He says, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. And then in verse 38 through 39, which is actually our assurance uh, today when we confess uh, after this, he says, Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Many of us in this room are miserable because we're try- we've spent our whole lives trying to justify ourselves. But through our bank account, through our possessions, uh, our resources, how good we are to other people, and we can't keep up. Like, you can't keep tally of it. Unless some of you has a book here of like all the good things you've done versus the bad things, you have no idea where you stand in relationship to God. And Paul is saying, you can understand. He's giving them good news. He's saying, Jews, you can stop exhausting yourself, man. There is rest, and there's peace, and there's assurance in this Jesus Christ. Why won't you accept it? You want to make it harder than it has to be. And it's just because we want to be in control. We want to we we keep the measures. We want to know where the balances are. And the balance has totally been dropped to the floor as Jesus has done all the good work. And all you're, all you're asked to do is trust in the good work that he's done. Not in your own good works. To even repent of your good works. And not just your bad ones. It's so simple 
especially in our complicated American individualistic consumeristic culture, you're like, I, Jay, that can't be right. There's got to be something else, man. It's not. It wasn't for Paul telling the Jewish people that. It's not for us. And we can so relate to this Jewish audience. You know, it's not that the law of Moses didn't matter. It, it matters. It's extremely important. It shows them their need for Jesus. It restrains evil within the community. It's showing the kingdom ethic that God one day wants to have with his people, that he wants the church to exist, to not murder and steal and lie and do all of these things. That's good to show what God values and what he loves, so we love and value the same thing. And it's also meant to, to point us into how to live. Okay, so the law matters, but we should always approach the law as showing us our deep need for Jesus. And the Jews didn't like that because Jesus hadn't come. And they waited wrong long enough. So they got to make things happen. And that, that's not the way. So they need to repent of their impatience. And for them, Jesus' death was actually proof that he was an imposter. But that's why, Paul, it's so important that he talks about his resurrection as well. Because his resurrection was a vindication by God that every word Jesus said, every deed he performed was proof of his true identity as the Messiah. You don't have a resurrected Savior in any other religion. But here you do. So you got to do business with that. And so you can ask yourself, ah, that's too much. I don't believe in that. Like, he's just a prophet, nice guy. I'll follow what he says I should do. And then I'll trust the rest to God or myself. Um, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. So if you call yourself a Christian, that's what you believe. You've got to start rethinking things. And like Paul challenged his audience, I would challenge you as well, boldly, hopefully winsomely and humbly, <laughs> to rethink how you've thought about salvation. And the gospel here, it's always confronting the culture. Um, I think in our postmodern culture, the gospel is saying there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Not all roads lead to the same place. And that's hard because it sounds really arrogant and really exclusive. But do you see how while Paul is saying that? He's also being extremely inclusive. He's saying it's true, but it's for everybody. It's not just for somebody who who's done all these things, is for anyone who believes it. Again, it's so much simpler than we could ever imagine. It's, not, it, it's saying there's one absolute truth that will not only save your soul, but show you how best to live this life. The story of the Bible is not saying we all come from nothing, that chaos produced order and design. It's saying there's a source, an intelligent designer, and that designer is personal. He's God who desires to love his people, to know you, to be known by you. I'll close with this. Paul's first public sermon goes a lot better than mine did in seminary. Um, we used to videotape those things. It's cringeworthy to watch. Um, and the people absolutely love it. They hear the good news. They want more of it. They ask them to come back the next week even. I mean, that's amazing confirmation there in him sharing. Tells us the, nearly the whole city shows up to hear the sequel. And unfortunately, as they all come up, the Jews decide, some of the Jews decide, I don't like where this is going. This means I've got to relinquish control. And we're, we're going to bring back the reins here. So they, they decide they're, they're, they're going to try to disrupt this. And Paul and Barnabas won't have anything to do with it as they offer a stern rebuke. They say, you thrust aside the word of God and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, we have to unpack two quick statements here to end. That's a fascinating statement. You thrust the word of God aside people who claim to be living by the word of God and all the precepts and law of God, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. 
Well, they judged themselves worthy of eternal life because they kept the law. So why is he telling them now, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life? It's because they think what he's saying is too simple. It's not worthy of salvation because it doesn't require enough. Just faith and repentance. And Paul is saying you're unworthy of that because you don't think it's simple enough. You think it's too hard. Or you think it's too simple. You don't think it's hard enough. And we want the same thing today. We want part of it, but it's much simpler than that. You look at verse 48. It's an astounding and tough truth that no matter what denominational background we come from, we've got to wrestle with this. Luke says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I didn't make that up. It's not my translation. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And that's a loaded statement. And no matter how you want to interpret that verse, you're welcome here at Clara. We can all worship together. We can get along. We can have community. But I have, an, I have what I believe is true. I have a conviction about this. And I was, you know, interesting, the builder of our home, it's been two years. He's like the nicest builder in the world uh, because Natalie's shelving unit in her closet all fell down. And my wife likes her clothes, and she's got a lot of them. And so um, there's a lot of clothes on the floor and a lot of purses and a lot of stuff, and it was just mass chaos. And so we text our builder, and we're like, man, our, our uh, what's it called, the uh, warranty, we know it's up, man. Um, could you come help? Because Jay is not going to be fixing this. Uh, and so he, he graciously comes over. He's just in the neighborhood, and he fixes the shelves in like five minutes. What would it take me three weeks? And then we're standing outside in the blazing heat again, um, and he's, we're just talking. I'm like, thank you so much and all this stuff. And he's like, hey, man, one thing I want to talk to you about, the predestination. I'm like, okay, we can have, you want to have the conversation now? Like, it's a provocative word you're using there. Um, he's like, yeah, I just, I, 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 we don't ever really get to see each other. And it goes to another wonderful church that actually believes in predestination. He's really struggling with it. He said, I just can't wrap my mind around it. Like, no matter how much I read about this, God appointing people to eternal life, all that kind of stuff, because I was sharing with him about my sermon. I can't wrap my mind around it. And he kept saying that. And I was like, um, Eric, who's a builder, you're not meant to. Like, stop. Stop trying to, man. There's things about God and the way he works. It's okay for you to say, I can't understand that. Because I can't understand it either. I mean, even Paul in Romans 9, Paul, the writer of Scripture, the apostle, the guy who's preaching a sermon, he says he'd forfeit his salvation for his Jewish friends to know God because he can't wrap his mind around how this works. That these people are clearly choosing. There's Jews rejecting them, and then there's people, Gentiles and Jews, accepting this message. So you see choice being made, yet it's saying God, as many as God appointed to eternal life, believed. I, I can't make sense of that. And so I don't have this like clear doctrine of predestination that makes sense of God and how he does everything. That's not the point. The point is to leave the mystery the mystery, to let God be God. But that's why we have faith, that's why we trust, because we can't figure out how everything works exactly. And for some reason, I've never seen this before, <laughs> Eric felt really great relief from that. He's like, no one's ever really said that. They just try to explain it. And I was like, well, I can't. So um, he's like, yeah, I'm going to stop trying to wrap my mind around that. I'm going to take it for what it is. Um, You know, 
There's great comfort here knowing that the story of God's people had always been moving towards a specific and fulfillment, a specific fulfillment and culmination, not moving aimlessly. There was always a perfect plan for Israel and Egypt. To their deliverance, to their wanderings, to their entrance into the promised land, to the judges and the kings, which is all Paul recounts, nothing was haphazard or by chance or by accident. It was all fulfilling a plan. So is the salvation of these people also fulfilling a plan? Or is that just haphazard? Is that just whoever? And it's really an understanding, as I've talked there too, about our understanding of sin and depravity. Like, can we, is there enough good left in us to choose God? Or does he need to resuscitate us?